0: Hey everyone, this is Cabane the Christian. I've got a big video on apophatic theology coming out tomorrow, but it is still processing. So today I wanted to start an occasional uh, series that I'm going to be doing from time to time. Hopefully videos uh, five to seven minutes or... or even under uh, called Bible Bits. Uh, And it's just going to be a tidbit or a comment on some curious or interesting aspect of scripture or a particular text of scripture, Or it might discuss a uh, zany theory of the composition of scripture, zany being measured relative to what is considered academically respectable, as we're going to be discussing today. Uh, Before I get into that, I just want to briefly say, if you enjoy these videos, do remember to like, subscribe, and share with those whom you think might be interested. And if you are uh, in a financially good spot, do consider making a contribution to my Patreon in one of its three tiers, or at a rate uh, of your own at $10 and up, you will have access to premium content. Uh, the first premium content will be released next week. Details on that in tomorrow's video. It'll be a full interview, and plus there's some other stuff that I've got in the works that will be released very soon. Uh, so do consider making that contribution. Uh, it's uh, I, always, I do feel tacky asking for money under any circumstances, uh, but it is important to the productive future and regular um, content producing nature of this channel. Um, So I, I've talked about that a little more in the other video, uh, but today I want to talk about the curious question of whether the evangelists knew each other and wrote for each other. Now it is a mainstay of conventional New Testament studies that each of the four gospels was written for specific local audience, which is called the community of each gospel. And this community was so important to the evangelists, the authors of the gospels, uh, according to this conventional interpretation, that one can actually reconstruct the histories of these various communities by looking under the surface and reading between the lines of what the various evangelists say and do not say about Jesus, and say and do not say about his early followers now needless to say this is not an approach which is taken by all scholars or even most scholars to this kind of extreme nevertheless I would say it's generally taken for granted that each of the four evangelists wrote for a particular local community, a community which was part of their own context. The problem with this as Richard Balcom points out is that not only is there no evidence for this in antiquity a person generally would not write such a significant document for someone with whom he could just walk. Uh, over and talk to in his neighbor's house. Documents like this were produced to be copied. Multiple copies were generally made in the first manuscript production, and they would be sent out, and the people who received it would make copies and circulate it themselves. In fact, we have manuscript evidence from the early church, for example, in the Oxyrhynchus pap- uh, papyri, in Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, that this is exactly what the early Christians were doing. Uh, Paul, in his letters, uh, writes to particular city churches and he mentions in these city churches the christians in these cities knowledge of uh, people who worked with him the city churches are networked together uh, clement uh, writes to a city church that is is aware of Uh, writes on behalf of the city church of Rome and is aware of what's going on in Corinth. And essentially all the evidence that we have indicates that the early Christian church in the first three centuries was a network of city churches where they were all quite aware of what was going on in these other cities, and they would make copies of the documents that each one was reading, even if those documents were not of scriptural value. And I should say that the evidence that the New Testament authors thought they were producing anything other than scripture uh, seems to me to be relatively thin on the ground now of course that in itself is not an argument for their knowledge that they were producing scripture i would cite paul's instruction that his own letters be read in the synagogue and the uh, scriptural style uh, taken by uh, authors like saint john in the apocalypse Uh, and there are other things we'll get into another time Uh, but uh, things that we tend to take for granted by osmosis, I think we should really question. And I think the authors in the New Testament did note that they were writing Scripture. But the question I want to get into today, and look, we're already at the five-minute mark, um, oh well, uh, is did the evangelists not only know each other, but did they write for each other? Now, I'm... am a, I'm, absolutely unfashionable and that i believe the traditional claims of the gospel authorship matthew mark luke and john matthew was written by matthew mark was written by mark luke was written by luke john was written by john and that's that there are reasons for that but I'm just giving you a little background of what i'm about to say now if you look at the old testament the hebrew bible it's a collection of prophetic Uh, literature and it's very clear if you have any sense at all that the writers of the Old Testament are constantly echoing each other's words there are countless common phrases and the common phrases aren't randomly distributed as if they were just phrases that were in the air instead they're used in an intelligible way they're used in a way so that the passage makes sense when it's understood in light of the passage from which the phrase is being taken if one prophet is echoing the words of another prophet one will look at the surrounding context often and find that they're discussing the exact same things or one will find that some obscure little detail in Isaiah is or one obscure little detail in let's say um, Hosea or Amos is explained by looking at the context of the source text in Isaiah and this is a constant feedback loop so that all of the scriptures uh, within the Old Testament, not just between the Old and New Testaments, are networked in with each other and are in a reciprocal bond of interpretive um, clarification. Now, this is the way that scripture was simply constructed. One day we'll talk about the Old Testament canon, but needless to say, I don't think it ever developed. I think the Old Testament canon was coextensive with the authorship of those books to begin with. Talk about that another day. I just want to talk about some, not decisive, but some interesting textual evidence that the four evangelists were indeed writing for what they expected to be a compilation of literature bearing witness to the coming of Jesus Christ. And we should remember that if you are living in that time, Uh, it would be expected that whenever the God of Israel acts in a major way to redeem his people, that it would be associated with a flurry of new scriptural writing. Whether or not you believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the people in the first century believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And we talk about the intertestamental period, but the reality is that the gap between the traditional date of the Exodus and the traditional date for the writing of the Book of Psalms is just about as long, only a little Uh, only a little shorter than the so-called intertestamental period. Uh, There were four major flurries of scriptural writing. uh, The time of Moses, Moses, Moses-Joshua, the time of the kings, uh, David, uh, Solomon, uh, uh, and some of the wisdom texts, uh, the time of the prophets, which is extended over a couple centuries, ultimately leading down to Ezra and who seals the Canon and Chronicles, and then the New Testament authors themselves. So you have four major flurries of writing. It was not a consistent gradual drip, 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 of scriptural literature. Uh, it was part of the covenant history in the order of things that if God acted in a major way to mature his people in a particular mode or to fulfill his promises, well then, it would be associated with a flurry of scriptural writing. So it would be more surprising if nobody, if nobody had tried to produce scriptures. And when we look at the actual texts of the gospels, we find that the four, four gospels are doing four somewhat different things. They're each providing four different perspectives on the life of Christ. This has been associated symbolically with all sorts of different fourfold patterns, the four faces of the cherubim uh, among them. Uh, that's a topic for another video. Uh, But I just want to look at the beginning and end of each of the four Gospels to suggest to you that uh, Mark, Luke, and John are locking into a pre-existing literary archetype so as to identify with this developing canon of literature. And I'm just going to focus on the textual notes from this point forward. So to give you a place for further reading, it's actually by a, a secular scholar, actually pretty left wing in terms of his position in terms of religious orthodoxy scholar called David Trobisch who has argued in a short book, that the New Testament was published as a single text, that the arrangement of books in the New Testament was not happenstance, but that the manuscript traditions of the New Testament can actually go back to a single manuscript family of the New Testament books uh, that extends to the middle of the second century, which he associates with the Marcionite controversy. I think he's correct, except I would just put it in the lifetime of the Apostle John. So, Bible bits at the beginning of each of the four Gospels. Matthew 1.1, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word is often rendered genealogy. It's an allusion to texts like Genesis 5.1, the book of the genealogy of Adam. uh, But the word is literally Genesis. And Genesis, of course, first book of the Bible, it's the beginning of things, the birth of things. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of, Jesus Christ, the son of God. So you have Jesus Christ, the son of Matthew 1. You have he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark 1, he is the son of God. In both cases, you have references to the beginning, though here the words are not identical. The underlying concept obviously was associated in the reader's minds. Uh, Luke 1, to 1-2, we have those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word i haven't highlighted the word here but it's a significant point to note the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, and then john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and in the very same prologue of john's gospel we have a whole host of sonship language uh, monogamous means only begotten but i won't rest my case on that uh, God, the only son, even if you render uh, monogamous, um, even if you render monogenes as unique, there is still plenty of filial language that's present in the prologue of John's gospel, which links it into Matthew and Mark, both of which refer to these Jesus Christ as the son of X. So this is the first, we should remember that these texts were written to be read aloud. They weren't being written so that you could read them silently in a corner. They were being written so that people could hear them. Uh, St. John says, blessed is he who reads, meaning he who reads it liturgically, and he who hears. So the way that your ear works is you pick up on a key, you hear a certain rhythm or a pattern of sound, and it reminds you of something. And maybe you can't put your finger on it at first, but eventually you come to see, oh, that's what it's reminding me of. Well, when you're reading aloud the gospel texts like this, and they begin with references to the beginning or Jesus Christ, the son of David, or the, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it creates an association in the mind of the hearer. Is this is a knockdown argument. No, it's not a decisive argument. It's not going to prove anything in and of itself. But it's an interesting point to make um, in light of a broader picture, suggesting that in fact the four evangelists already had a canonical sense, and that they were uh, referencing each other's texts. And we're not writing, as some people have incorrectly supposed to undermine each other Uh, we'll talk about this right now but richard balcom's case that john wrote as a complement to mark's gospel is very persuasive and if you look at the testimony of two witnesses theme in john's gospel it fits in perfectly with this because mark is based on the testimony of peter and who is john always paired with in the gospel of john well it's john and peter so mark and john were meant to be written so as to produce a complete chronology of the life of jesus and you have the end of the four Gospels. Just like at the beginning of the four Gospels, you have a mutual echo, so also at the end of the four Gospels, you have this echo. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, so on and so forth. This is the classic Great Commission text. Uh, Mark 16, 15 to 19, he said to them, go into all the word, proclaim the gospel of all creation, who believes in baptism be saved, so on and so forth. Now, I do have to make a comment on this because immediately I know that some of you will say, well, that's not an original part of the gospel of Mark. I would say, yes, it most certainly is. Uh, you, uh, You should check out James Snap. Uh, both on Mark uh, 16, 15 to 19, uh, and on John 8. uh, But on Mark 16, the best book is not being written by James Snapp. It was by, I believe the name is Nicholas Lunn. It's a new case for the authenticity of the long ending of Mark. And what he points out is that, first of all, many of the claims of uniquely non-Markan terminology here is simply false. It's just not true when you actually look at the claims and you test them out. They're just memes which are circulated around. Uh, Second of all, uh, the fact that the earliest manuscripts don't include Mark 16, um, 16, uh, 9 to 20 is irrelevant because we have patristic quotations of this passage that precedes the earliest manuscripts. Now, it just so happens that the earliest manuscripts, Happen to be Alexandrian manuscripts. And just, so what this indicates is that we have one manuscript family where this text is problematic. And some people will say, well, there's another ending of Mark, which isn't the short ending, it's not the long ending. Well, that's also an Alexandrian issue. This is a problem which is limited to one manuscript tradition. It is not spread across manuscript traditions. There are reasons for this problem in the manuscript tradition, as Nicholas Lunn explains, that can be easily uh, accounted for, Uh, but most importantly, the earliest evidence we have for the actual ending of the Gospel of Mark is not the manuscripts themselves, but patristic references to the ending of the Gospel of Mark, which include this text. So you can go read Nicholas Lunn if you want to get the whole story, but I'm counting Mark uh, 16, 9 to 20 as part of the Gospel. Uh, Luke 24, you open their minds to understand the Scriptures, said to them, "Thus written, Christ should suffer. On the third day, rise from the dead, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You see here that in each of the synoptic Gospels, Uh, You begin with an in the beginning, a son of, and then you end with a great commission of sorts. These are different sayings of Jesus, but each of them is speaking about precisely the same thing. There's an anointing which is given to the apostles. The anointing is the basis of the commission, and the commission is to evangelize all nations through the Holy Spirit who enforces the authority of Jesus. Now, John's gospel, as usual, is a bit of an odd one out. You have the three witnesses, and then you have John, which is the cornerstone. It's kind of an odd, uh, sui generis text. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. This is John 20, 21, 23. As the Father sent me, even so am I sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. So this is the commissioning of the apostles to go into the world and evangelize, Uh, but it's not framed in exactly the same terms. And there's a whole nother chapter of John's gospel that comes after this. Now the chapter of John's gospel that comes after this, however, uh, signifies the same themes under symbolic archetypes. So you have the catching of fish, and the tending of sheep. So the catching of fish has already been established throughout the gospels as a sign of the apostles going to the world and gathering men. Jesus says to Peter, I will make you fishers of men. And lo and behold, in this narrative of the catching of fish after Jesus' resurrection, Peter is the central character. Uh, In the catching of fish, fish, Jesus invites them to breakfast and he uses the Eucharistic words of institution to offer them Breakfast. Point being, the body of Christ is being associated with the fish who are caught because the nations are brought into the body of Christ. There's a significance to the number 153, which I won't get into, but it's not a kind of random or arbitrary significance for another time. And then tending sheep. Now, who can seriously say that this is not a symbol of the church, the people of God, because Jesus himself says it? Jesus says to Peter, Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Already in the Gospel, we've seen that Jesus said He will have one fold and one shepherd, uh, those from Judah, and those who are not of the, uh, that fold, usually taken to refer to the nations or the northern kingdom of Israel. And there's a lot of overlap between those two categories for reasons we can't get into. Point being, you have the very same themes that are being articulated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but you have them articulated in a very different way in the Gospel of John. You have them articulated uh, in uh, by the instrument of symbolic archetypes rather than direct statements. And you see the same thing in its sacramental theology. You don't have the Eucharist actually described in the Gospel of John. You don't don't have the baptism of Jesus directly described or narrated in the Gospel of John. Instead, you have seven images of the Eucharist in the Gospel, and then you have seven images of baptism in the Gospel. And I can list all those out for you if you want, but we probably will do that in another time. Uh, Yeah, I said five to seven minutes. This is (laughs) 19 minutes. That's just ludicrous. Uh, I ask your forgiveness. I hope you enjoyed it, though, to some degree. I hope you enjoyed a little taste of what it means to be zany.